Amazing. Yeah, same thing happens in Auburn. Welcome to another Sunday Conversation presented by FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Durso, and my guest this hour is Professor Steve Keeler. He serves as Director of the Media and Telecommunications Programs at SUNY Cuyahoga Community College. He's here for a wide-ranging discussion on the state of media and journalism. Uh, it's one that I'm really excited about. Steve, Professor, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me, Josh. I'm happy to be here. So uh, the first question I wanted to ask you was, you were here on the program or on, on uh, Inside the FLX uh, about year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, what has sort of stood out to you in the, the news and journalism and, and sort of that business in general? Well, I think, you know, one thing um, that we've seen that I'm really concerned about um, is the sort of the death of local news, um, which I think is caused by uh, the decline in the print newspaper. Right. Um, although I think you do a great job here with maintaining uh, local news and with providing uh, people with a source for local news. And so in many ways, you're the future of local journalism with what you do. Um, but that, I think, is a very disturbing trend, um, you know, the decline in local news. Uh, you know, I can remember years ago when I started in journalism, um, I worked for a weekly local paper. And, you know, what did we do? We covered town board meetings. We covered village board meetings. We covered planning board meetings. Um, we had a pretty thick paper that came out once a week. And if you, were, if you lived in one of the towns that we covered, um, you knew everything that was going on with your local government, with your local police, with your local schools. Um, and we just don't see that anymore. Um, the, the, the local paper like that, the weekly paper, died a long time ago. Uh, the local dailies, the metropolitan dailies like the Syracuse Post-Standard, uh, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle are, are good examples. Uh, you know, they have far fewer people on the staff. Uh, they don't cover that kind of local news. Uh, their news coverage tends to be centered around their city of origin like Rochester or Syracuse. Uh, so it's difficult, I think, if you are you know, concerned citizen or you want to be informed about what's happening locally, it's, di- it's difficult to dig that out uh, unless there is, you know, someone in your town who uh, makes a point of going to meetings and maybe writing a blog about it uh, or maybe doing a podcast about it. But, you, you know, we really can't count on that. So I think that is a real concern. Um, I have seen uh, there's an effort, I think, by Amazon, maybe I was reading about recently, uh, where Jeff Bezos, who you know, uh, bought the Washington Post, and I think Facebook um, is also uh, embarking on an initiative to fund local journalism, uh, to try to bring it back uh, through the use of social media rather than print. And I, you know, and I think they're to be lauded for that, um, but it's in its very early stages, and, and we don't really know where it's going. Um, but Maybe, you know, if that encourages folks to get involved in covering local events and local government, uh, maybe we'll see a return to that kind of information being provided to people. But right now, it, it, it really isn't in most areas. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's, that, that's very concerning to me. And I think the last time you were here, you did mention the, the sort of citizen journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, 
for small for a lot of the small communities obviously as an opportunity but um there isn't always the the credibility or the standing with that right. sort of citizen journalism no matter how good it is um obviously i i always tend to use the example of uh, a couple different blogs that we follow here finger lakes one.com uh, the geneva believer uh, and then also uh, the waterfront online um, right. two people who uh have a lot of credibility and and do a really stand up job in terms of what they're doing, but still, no matter how perfect the information is that they're conveying, it, it doesn't carry the same weight as what that daily newspaper did fifteen or twenty years ago. Is that just a reality of sort of what how news consumption has gone and what people really think about um, news, especially with a lot of uh, phrases like fake news and misinformation getting rolled around pretty regularly? Yeah, I think uh, I think people in general nowadays are more skeptical about what we would loosely call news uh, than they have been in a long time. Um, I think when we look at uh, po- different polls and different studies, uh, you know, we see that faith in what we would consider to be mainstream journalism, traditional journalism, uh, the, the faith the public has in those as news sources has declined over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, not maybe not the ability, but the opinion that most people have about news sources is that they're all the same. They're not differentiating between, um, you know, a news feed that someone who they have no idea who it is puts out on Facebook, for example, and the New York Times, right? Right. They don't recognize or don't see that there's a difference. You know, the New York Times is to to many people um, as unreliable as the guy down the street who witnessed an accident. Mm-hmm. In terms of what the reporting is, now you and I know that's not true. Right. There's a big difference between uh, a trained journalist who's you know you know drawing a salary and is working at it every day and is dedicated to the craft of journalism and somebody who witnesses an incident mm-hmm. and puts it up on social media, right? There's a big difference in the reliability of those two, of those two sources of what we would call news. Um, but I think because all these terms like fake news uh, have been thrown around for the last few years, uh, many people you know, are sort of throwing everybody into the same pot um, mm-hmm. and painting everybody with the same brush. Uh, and I think it's in many ways up to, I think, the mainstream media uh, to try to fight back against that and to, you know, really let the public know that there is a difference and, and really, you know, emphasize what those differences are. I keep saying in the Post Standard, I'm, you, know, I, I, you know, I live in the Syracuse area, so, you know, I get the, uh, the Post Standard, um, and there is every day uh, an ad in the Post Standard. It's not really an ad. It's just a, a piece that the Post Standard puts in that talks about mainstream and reliable journalism and what the difference is between that and and fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think they need to go a lot further in terms of re-educating everyone about what reliable journalism and news sources are and what unreliable sources are. Uh, and I, don't, I don't think they do a good enough job with that. And I think it's probably because they got, they've been caught short by two things. One, this sort of wave of criticism of them and being called fake news. And then I also think the decline in the um, revenues 
right. um, of our traditional mainstream sources. So when when <clears throat> when I hear that response and I, I think about what I've seen over the last two to three to four years, um, I, I can't help but imagine that if there were more uh, unity within the industry itself, that this might be able to be tamped down a little more effectively. It, what it feels like to me is that there's a lot of sort of individual efforts mm -hmm. to sort of push back against the fake news mantra, but you don't have sort of that united push where everybody is saying it at the same time. Is that, do you think that's part of it or? Well, I do. I think um, many news outlets have become partisan um, <laughs> over the past several years. Um, and I think a lot of it's due to the success of Fox News. Right. Um, you know, when Roger Ailes, who was a political operative, uh, started Fox News, he did it because he saw that there really wasn't a conservative voice out there mm -hmm. in the media and felt that, you know, that was an, an unfilled need. And it turned out he was right. Yeah. right? So Fox News starts... Um, it has this conservative, um, I won't say an agenda, but it has this uh, conservative lens in which it looks at um, world events and national events. <laughs> and it turns out there were a lot of people waiting for that, just hungry for that, and it became right. very successful. So the success of that kind of partisan journalism has led to other companies looking at it and say, well, gee, if Fox can do that, maybe there's a, a space in this news world for us. Great example is MSNBC, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, so NBC, you know, a few years ago, not too long ago, uh, you know, takes this channel, MSNBC, which started out as a partnership between Microsoft and NBC, thus the MS and MSNBC, uh, and says, well, you know, if, if Fox is so successful um, having a sort of right-leaning news network, maybe we can be successful with a left-leaning news network. Uh, and it turns out they were right. There were people waiting for that. And so we've seen this sort of partisanship um, in, our, in our news media that wasn't so obvious before. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, are Fox and MSNBC going to um, get together and say, hey, let's start this great crusade against fake news? Well, no, because it helps each of them to call the other one fake, mm -hmm. right? And it, it, that's how you get audiences excited. That's how you get audiences to watch. So their agenda doesn't necessarily lend itself <coughs> to working together. And really, as, you know, as news sources um, that a lot of people are interested in and a lot of people watch, um, you know, they really should work together. Reminds me, um, you know, years ago, when there weren't as many sources of news. And I mean, if we think about how many sources there are now, oh, I mean, yeah. you're yeah. one here. You're a source of news. I mean, yeah. you could not have existed 10 years ago right. doing this. Um, there are many, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, the Huffington Post, a web-based newspaper, essentially, couldn't have existed 20 years ago. Um, you know, the idea that you have these cable networks who have these sort of niche audiences, Fox, MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, I mean, that couldn't have existed 30 years ago. And if we go back before that, you know, we look at our, you know, the, the three big networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC, their evening news 
was the most watched, they were the most watched programs, pretty much of any program. People tuned in religiously. And, you know, the great Walter Cronkite, who was for many years the, um, you know, the anchor for the CBS News, if Walter Cronkite said something, people believed it, right? The great Uncle Walter. I mean, when Walter Cronkite, you know, came out against the Vietnam War in the late 60s, I mean, that changed people's minds about the Vietnam War. And people of all political stripes, you know, considered, you know, Walter Cronkite and his news show to be a reliable source of news regardless of what their political convictions were. Um, And so he would create national conversations. Um, And now we don't really have that. We have what we really have what are are partisan conversations. And part of what's happened with news is, you know, this whole idea of tribalism. Um, You know, as as humans, we're inclined, you know, only to listen to things that we agree with. So if someone um, is liberal politically, um, you know, they're inclined to watch MSNBC Mm -hmm. or find other liberal leaning sites to get their news from. If someone is more conservative politically, they're inclined to watch Fox uh, and never watch MSNBC. And I think it's fascinating if you if you if you watch sometimes and do like a side by side comparison of MSNBC and Fox covering the same story, uh, you know the different take each each one has on, on on that story. And of course, it's interesting. You know, when I talk to people who um, are regular viewers of, of networks like that, um, you know, folks who watch MSNBC will say, "Well, MSNBC is very reliable and very objective, right?" Mm-hmm. But and they then these folks tend to be you know of a more liberal political persuasion and if they watch fox they'll say you know they they're telling me nothing but lies on fox you know they're yeah. doing nothing but putting forth their conservative agenda and someone who watches fox will generally say boy you know fox is great you know it's very objective they don't have any agenda um but if they were when they watch msnbc they say wow those stinking liberals on msnbc you know, that's terrible. They're doing nothing but telling lies about, you know, uh, things that I'm in favor of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all have this sort of lens that we view the news through, and it tends to color our reaction to what we see and, and to what we see and hear. And it leads to this greater partisan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, divide that we see in the news now, which I think is unfortunate So and troubling. Right. And, and I'm sort of curious um, it sounds like you're you're saying that in some ways the internet kind of blew the doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any? And we're going to talk about social media because I think that's kind of its own beast. Um, yeah. it, it, is it possible to sort of roll it back at this point to a point where is it ever going to be attainable to say that trust in in news the way it existed forty years ago can can that happen? Again, I think it's a great question, and you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'd like to think, uh, you know, that we'd we'd come together as you know a, a nation and have some agreement as to what are reliable sources of news, but I don't see it really happening anytime soon. Um, I, I, you know, what I see is increasing, um, you know, fragmentation mm-hmm. uh, among. Among people, and you know, among how they get their, among how about how they get their news, um, and I really do think that um, you know it really is up to those who run the news media 
to educate consumers, viewers, listeners right. about the importance of reliable, reliable news. I mean, I have a lot of students who want to be journalists, right? And it is not in their mind that what they're going to do is make up stories, you right. know, and just fake things. Mm-hmm. You know, in their mind, you know, what is it that they're going to do as journalists? Well, you know, they are going to be interviewing people. They're going to be um, writing stories about things that are happening. They're going to try to find reliable sources to tell them, you know, to give them the backstory. And, you know, one of the things that, that young journalists learn in journalism schools um, is a code of ethics. Right. And, you know, we can, you know, we can, and, you know, we hear all the time nowadays that journalists are unethical, but it's pretty far from the truth. Right. I mean, most people who are professional journalists, um, you know, they know that if they make up stories uh, or if, if they uh, present facts that are unsubstantiated, uh, they're going to get fired. Yeah. You know, a legitimate news source isn't going to put up with that. And we've seen stories in the past of, uh, you know, people who've done that. And what happened? They got fired. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's a whole movie about that with uh, 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 Robert Redford, where he essentially plays the Dan Rather character. Right. Where they presented an unsubstantiated story on national news about George W. Bush and his military experience. Mm -hmm. What was the end result? The end result was that Dan Rather had to resign as the anchor of CBS News. His producers were fired, um, and several of the other folks who worked on the stories, you know, were disciplined by the the network. Um, You know, legitimate news sources, legitimate news organizations won't put up with that. Why? Because it affects their credibility. Right. If you if we don't think that a news organization is presenting us with reliable news and we don't think they're credible, uh, we're not going to watch, we're not going to listen, we're not going to buy what they have to sell. So you mentioned uh, students, journalism students, communication students. Um, taking that whole sort of media field, uh, mm-hmm. lumping, lumping them into one group, um, what are we seeing today in terms of what that crowd looks like in size compared to what it did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Um, the assumption is probably that there are fewer, um, fewer folks going into that, that line of work. Is, is that actually bearing out or, or do, are the numbers staying kind of consistent? Um, we're actually doing pretty well. Our, our numbers in terms of students who come in to study media communications and media production have stayed pretty stable over the years. Uh, there certainly has been a change in what students see as career possibilities when they come into a program. So, you know, because I think there's been a lot of um, talk in the media about the decline of journalism, um, you know, that's not lost on, on young people. That's not lost on, on young students. So I see fewer students go, coming in who say, I want to be a journalist. I do see more students now who say, I want to get into public relations. All right? PR it seems to be a very, it's a, it's a big field now, and it's a growing field. Yeah. Um, and students recognize that, and they want to get into that. I see more students, uh, I see fewer students who say, I want to get into radio uh, than years ago because, there's a lot of talk about the decline of radio. Now, it's not true. Radio advertising is, uh, in terms of traditional uh, over-the-air radio, terrestrial radio, 
mean, there was more money in radio advertising last year than in the history of radio. Right. Uh, there are just as many stations now as there were 20 years ago, if not more. Um, but, you know, what they see is that there's not as many opportunities to do news on the radio or to be DJs or those kinds of things. So radio has dropped off. Interest in things like what you do, podcasting, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, both video and audio podcasts, that's, we've seen an increase in that. There's been an increase in interest in getting into the recording business because, um, you know, the, record, the music industry has come back, right. mainly because of services like Spotify yeah. on the Internet, yeah. you know, providing these huge revenue streams to, to record labels um, and, to, and to record companies. And then uh, there's been a huge increase in interest in um, filmmaking. And I think that's been spurred on by um, the streaming services. Mm-hmm. There, you know, if we look at the, uh, the st- things like uh, Amazon and Hulu and Netflix, um, HBO, and even some of the things the networks are doing, um, we're in this, um, uh, I, there was a book the other day, I picked up uh, the Platinum Age of Television. There used to be the Golden Age of Television in the 50s, now we're in the Platinum Age. Yeah. Would, because there is so much high-quality programming coming out of these streaming services because they're competing for customers, uh, there, it turns out there's a huge increase in the number of jobs available uh, for young people, who want, young people who want to get into the film industry. I mean, even in Syracuse, um, you know, the, uh, the, the New York State Labor Commissioner was in town a couple of weeks ago for a discussion about how to grow the film industry in Syracuse mm-hmm. and how can we... Um, encourage more young people to get into the film industry and build up, uh, you know, a core of, of people in the Syracuse area who have skills in filmmaking because so many films are starting to come into uh, central New York because of the state's tax break and the film hub that's in DeWitt and now the American High Productions in Liverpool. Um, you know, there seems to be a real, even locally, a growth in that. And a lot of that's spurred by the fact that these streaming services just need so much content. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to those students, particularly uh, the, the students who are thinking about a career in journalism or uh, even just uh, broadcast or however that, that, you know, the reporting side of it, um, what it seems like I've personally experienced with interns is that there's a little bit of a uh, misinterpretation of expectation versus reality. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that's pretty common in terms of what what you know some of these younger folks who are thinking about making a career out of out of reporting and and being in the news? Um, expectation versus reality of what they're what they're covering. Because I, I think about some of the folks who um, they've worked as field reporters for, for in some of these local markets and. You know, you sort of see the burnout play out in real time on Twitter over the course yeah. of years. And, you know, you go from they're on scene somewhere every single morning, a house burns down or there's yeah. an accident or something like that. Um, but it seems like a lot of times the interest is the human interest stuff. And that's what they're getting into it for. And then that that the reality of what it really is after a year or two years or three years um, seems to have an effect. Is that is that real or is that sort of a, a niche thing that's happening rather than being a, a real trend? Um, 
well, I don't in know the business. It, yeah, I don't know if it's a if it's a, if I would call it a trend. I mean, I think that's always been the reality of the news business. Um, you know, I, I do think um, when when young people think about you know when they're in in high school, for instance, and they're and, and they're starting to think about you know careers and college and you know what could I be good at. Um, you know, what's going to be my place in the working world? Um, I think when those young, when, when, when high school students in particular think about, well, I, I, you know, I'll do something in news, um, their only exposure is really sort of um, what they see on television, right? right? Um, you know, they, because it's visible, and so, you know, what is it that they see? Well, they, they, they see people sitting at desks and having conversations um, and, you know, looking at the camera and talking, and they think, well, you know, I could do that, right? Yeah. Um, and unless they really delve into it and get involved, say, like in a, in a school paper or a school uh, news website, um, you know, and start to really consider, well, what really is News. What really is the content of these shows that I see? What's really the content of these websites where I read news? Um, you know, it's not all. It's not all glamour. All right. So I think there is some. You know. So I think if you're a young person, you know, say you say you went from Cayuga, uh, and then you went to you know Ithaca College, mm-hmm. and you know you've. You've been practicing in front of a camera. You've been practicing writing stories. You've been practicing working at the anchor desk. Um, and now you go to work for a news station, and you work in a small market, and you know the, and and you're on this sort of like eight to ten hour, twelve hour a day grind of oh I got to go to a fire, oh I got to go to this meeting, oh I got to go to the you know uh, public safety building. And I got to interview people. I got to write a story. I got to edit the story. If you're in a really small market, you know, not only that, but I have to carry the camera and I've got to set it up and I've got to, you know, stand in front of it and tape myself. And then I've got to take the camera off the tripod and I've got to get some shots. Um, It's hard work. Yeah. And it's a lot of work. And I think, you know, if, if, if someone isn't moving up the ladder and getting into bigger markets where the pay is better or isn't moving up and getting onto the anchor desk where you don't have to go out every day, uh, you know, for eight or ten hours a day, I think it's it's pretty easy to burn out and think, you know, this isn't for me. Maybe I should get into public relations. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so it's interesting you mentioned that part of it, the the, the pay part of it, um, because I, I don't think most people, when they watch the evening news, they don't think about what market am I watching? Am I watching a medium market? Is it a small market? Is it a large market? Um, so walk us through a little bit of what that looks like because the one thing that I, I kind of I, I chuckle at, um, there's this assumption that because someone's on TV, they're on the morning news, they must be making a lot of money. They're on TV. They're making a lot of money. But what seems to be the, the, the norm is that that is not the case at all. Um, pay is pretty small, pretty low, especially in some of these smaller markets. Um, walk us through what that looks like is, is sort of the, the, the norm. Well, I think, um, you know, there are about 225 media markets in, in, the, in the United States, all the way, you know, the largest one being, number one is New York, the New York City metropolitan area, and, you know, number 225 um, might be Ithaca, right. I think. 
Um, so you have, you know, the, the largest media market has about 12 million people in it. The smallest one has about 30,000 people in it. Syracuse is about number 90, I think, which makes it a medium market. Uh, Rochester is in the high 50s, and I think Buffalo is in the 40s. So Buffalo, you would consider, and so they divide them up by there's major markets, large markets, medium markets, small markets. Anything over 100 is a small market. So Utica is a small market. Binghamton is a small market. Um, if you're in a medium market like Syracuse and you're an anchor on one of the network affiliates, so Channel 5, which is the CBS affiliate, um, Channel 9, which is the ABC affiliate, Channel 3, which is the NBC affiliate, if you're one of the anchors morning or evening, you're making a pretty good living. Um, you know, those folks do okay. Um, and you, if you were doing that in a major market, you know, your income might be approaching seven figures. There's right. big money in it if you, yeah. can, you know, if you can move up the ladder. But if you're coming out of college and uh, you get a job, say, in Binghamton, which is, say, market, market number 120 or 130, something yeah. like that, um, you know, maybe you're making $30,000 a year, you know, to start. Um, and I would think, you know, you really have to think about that as almost like an apprenticeship. Right. And they're going to have you do everything. So if you're a young reporter and you're in the Binghamton market or a Utica market, um, you know, your assignment editor is going to give you a story and say, you know, go out to, oh, there's a fire. Run out there in the, in, in the truck and, uh, you know, cover the fire for us. So you're going to have a camera and a tripod and a microphone, and you're going to turn the camera on yourself you're going to stand up in front of the camera and say where you are and what the story is. Then you're going to take the camera off the tripod and, or leave it on, maybe throw it on your shoulder, and you're going to get some shots of the scene around the fire. You're going to interview the, uh, you know, the fire chief. You're going to interview some of the neighbors. Um, then you're going to take all that back to the station. You're going to edit it all together. You're going to write a voiceover for it. You're going to record that voiceover, and then you're going to hand it in as a package for the maybe for the five o'clock or five thirty news, and then you're going to go out to your next assignment, and you know you're going to do that, you know, as many times a day as time allows, you know, in an eight to ten hour shift, and that shift could start if you're you know could start at four in the morning, it could start at noon, it could start at eight o'clock at night, uh, it could be on the weekends. Um, and your shifts could be varying depending on you know where they where they need you, and you're going to be working holidays, mm -hmm. right? Because the news never stops, right? I mean, if I'm sitting home on Memorial Day and I have the day off because it's a holiday, I can still tune in to the news on TV, right. and there are still people working. So, yeah. and you're going to work all the holidays. And I think, you know, the goal for somebody like that is to, you know, put the time in at that level. And then try to move up to a bigger market where the pay is better. And then try to move up to a bigger market where the pay is better. Um, and then if you get really lucky, like a, a David Muir, for example, and you're really good, right, maybe you'll get picked up by the network. Right. And that's where the real money is. And, um, you know, and if you're, like, incredibly fortunate 
and, and also very skilled and very good, maybe like David Muir, you will be the 630 anchor for one of the major networks, you know, with a, you know, high seven-figure income. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about almost the exception to the rule in that case rather than being the standard. So it begs the question, how on earth is that appealing to, you know, and I I consider myself somebody who cares a great deal about the news, but that seems really, really unappealing. The the grind that it would take in the years that would, you know, you, you almost run the risk of burning out before you get to actually enjoy some of the oh, benefits of your, your sure. labor. I, well, I think, you know, uh, for, for someone doing that, um, I think there's a number of career paths. Um, you know, we'll often see, uh, you know, a young field reporter like that, um, you know, take on a job as an assignment editor so yeah. they're not out in the field or take on a job as a producer mm-hmm. for the news. I mean, there are several producers, um, you know, who are working every day because most, you know, there is, for the local stations, um, local news, those programs, are a big source of local advertising revenue, probably their biggest source, yeah. which is why on, on most stations you see they come on at 6 a.m. They're on from 6 o'clock you know, or maybe earlier, 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning until the national news starts at 7. Mm-hmm. Then they're back on at noon. Then they're back on from 5 to 6.30, and then they're back on at 11. You know, why are they on so much? Well, because it's a great revenue source. Having, that, having those local news programs attracts local advertising dollars and brings in a lot of money. Every one of those news programs needs a producer. Um, every one of those stations has to have one or more assignment editors. And, you know, those are jobs that aren't as much of that sort of day-in, day-out reporter grind. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll often see people move into uh, those kinds of roles. You'll often see folks uh, move into an anchor desk. Right. Can be because think about the anchors. There's a morning anchor. There's an afternoon anchor. There's an evening anchor. There's an eleven o'clock anchor. And then there are the weekend anchors. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of slots there as well. And you know, and then of course we often see uh, reporters at some point in their career uh, become communications directors or PR people. Right. right, and they wind up working for a public agency, uh, you know, a police agency, um, uh, a state agency, a city agency, as the PR spokesperson um, who writes the press releases and who is the face of that agency when they need to make some kind of statement, provide some kind of information to the public, and so that's a sort of um, career path for people who who get into the news you know, going into that sort of communication slash PR field. Mm-hmm. So there, I think there's a lot of opportunities. But what I always tell students is this. Is if you really want to get into news and get into journalism, think about whether or not you're a news junkie. Because people who succeed at it are people who are really interested in current events and who watch the news and can tell you what's going on locally, at a state level, and at a national level, and follow events, because that's what you have to do as a journalist. You need to be very aware of what's going on in your locality. You need to be very aware of what's going on in the state. Uh, You need to be, if you want to move up, you need to be very aware of what's going on at a national level, and you have to like it. So if you're not, you know, if you're not really a news junkie, then probably the news business isn't for you as a student. Uh, As a student, you you might want to think about you know, a different path 
maybe you're better off as a uh, editor. Maybe you're better off as, you know, going into filmmaking. Maybe you're better off, you know, uh, you know, working as a producer uh, someplace for for uh, for shows that have content that really interest you. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, obviously, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was uh, the the Chris Hughes piece. Um, is it time to break up Facebook? Um, I want to get your thoughts on it um, in general before we start diving into kind of the, mm. the bits and pieces. Um, walk us through what, what your thought process was on, on the premise. You know, it's, uh, for those people that, that don't know, um, one of the founders of Facebook, Chris Hughes, who was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate in school and helped him uh, found Facebook and worked at Facebook until about 10 years ago, uh, wrote this very lengthy op-ed piece in the New York Times in which he proposes that Facebook is an unlawful monopoly, is too dominant um, in the social media space, and needs to be broken up. And his suggestion was that they should uh, divest themselves of uh, WhatsApp, which they own, uh, Instagram, and a few others, uh, and those companies should become separate companies that can compete with Facebook. Um, you know, his premise is that... Uh, while he believes Mark Zuckerberg is a very nice guy, um, that he lacks control uh, over the company and that Facebook has become a threat to democracy because it controls the communications of over 2 billion people. Uh, And he believes, you know, that um, Facebook squelches competition, won't let other players into its space, uh, and so, therefore, is also uh, squelching innovation. But more importantly, it's squelching um, communication, it's squelching discourse, um, and because it's so large, it can't control uh, what we've come to see as fake news and manipulation mm-hmm. of, the, of the site uh, that leads people who use the site to believe in things that um, just simply aren't true. Um, and I guess an example would be, uh, you know, the 2016, the Russian interference with the 2016 right, right, right. election is a great example of that, uh, where they simply put out, you know, where, where people were paid to simply, you know, go on Facebook and create these weird stories about political candidates. Um, and But they looked like they were coming from legitimate people. Right. So... Then the question is, take, taking the question for, for what it's worth, is it time to consider breaking up or is it time to break up uh, a company like Facebook? And I guess you could also throw like a Google into the mix there and mm-hmm. some other uh, really big players that, are, that have spread out well beyond what they initially um, became globally powerful for. Uh, you know, I, I guess it... Um and, and, and we talk about this, and I talk about this in class with students, and we have some interesting discussions. It really depends on one's belief in whether or not um, monopolies in a certain industry are helpful or harmful. Um, in, in this country in particular, uh, there is a long-held belief, it goes back to Jefferson and Madison, that uh, monopolies are harmful to uh, innovation and competition. Um, so, you know, the ideas of competition is what does competition in an industry lead to? 
Well, it leads to innovation because a company has to differentiate itself from the other companies in that industry. And it leads to um, lower prices because, you know, if you, if you and I have competing companies and they're pretty much the same, how can I get people to buy my product uh, as opposed to yours? Oh, I could offer lower prices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, and so then we could fight, you know, we could bring it down to the lowest price possible. Um, when there is a monopoly in an industry, um, that, there, that monopoly has no incentive to lower prices, right. first of all. So prices remain high. Um, and that, um, that, that company, a, a company organization holds a monopoly in the industry has no incentive to innovate. Why should they? Right. There's nobody to compete with them. Why should, they, why should they innovate? And they have a vested interest if anybody does come into their space to compete in squelching them, either by driving them out of business or, in the case of Facebook and Google, just simply by buying them. And so now, if you, you have a company like Facebook that's such a huge behemoth um, and, and has such deep pockets, it would be very difficult for a new company to come in and try to compete with them. It's almost impossible. Yeah, basically impossible. So that train of thought would lead us to believe that, yes, maybe it's time to break up Facebook and have some competition in, in that space. And that's what, what Chris Hughes is um, suggesting, as well as he has, uh, has a whole other side of the argument, which is sort of unique to Facebook because it controls so much communication, social media, mm-hmm. um, that its control of that communication uh, is not good for the public discourse, uh, and it's not good for public communication. Um, you know, my own feeling is he's, he's, got, he's, he's probably right. Right. He's probably right. It is too big. It, uh, it is squelching the competition. Um, it may be time to, you know, to look at that. And it wouldn't be the first time um, our government has done something like that. I mean, um, you know, the famous case with AT&T, right? Yep. Um, you know, back in the, the 1920s, um, you know, the federal government decided to essentially give AT&T a monopoly on phone service in this, in this country. So... AT&T was the only company allowed to have long-distance phone service, so they controlled all long-distance service in the United States and about 95% of the telephone market. Um, so why did the government allow them to have that monopoly? Well, because the, it was thought to be good public policy to uh, have phone service extended to everyone in the country, and it was felt the only way to do that was to give one company a monopoly over that service. And with the mandate that they had to provide phone service to every home in America, mm-hmm. which essentially they did. Yeah. Uh, but by the you know, late 70s, uh, mid-70s, uh, it became pretty clear that the time for that monopoly was, was over, and yeah. uh, there was an antitrust action against AT&T that led to a court judgment that broke it up. And you know, there was an old joke about AT&T, right? Um, you know, AT&T would, would give you a phone in any color you wanted as long as it was black, yeah. right? the famous right. black telephone. Um, but they had ceased to innovate. They, had, uh, they didn't have any competition. They had ceased to, um, you know, prices just kept going up and up and up. And the breakup of AT&T led to what? Well, lots of other phone companies, lots of other manufacturers, and so, you know, we've essentially gone in 1984 from the, you know, the princess phone with a cord 
to you know these sort of wonderful uh, smartphones that we have today, yeah. which that innovation would not have occurred if AT&T had been allowed to maintain its monopoly. It's a great example to look at. I think the other thing we're look that's happening right now is um, the rollout of 5G service. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, as you know, 5G service is, um, a, is a very robust broadband wireless service yeah. um, for not just cell phones but for the so-called Internet of Things. If, uh, if there's 5G service in an area, you know, you're going to be able to seamlessly connect everything from your ring doorbell and video camera to your refrigerator and the grocery store to, uh, you know, your phone service, you know, to uh, driverless cars, to drones flying and dropping off packages in a congested city. Uh, you know, 5G is such robust service and there's so much bandwidth that this sort of future world is possible, they say, with mm-hmm. 5G. So It's the innovation you'd expect if you've, if you've watched the track over the last 10 yes. or 15 years. So how do we roll out 5G? Well, um, there's a case right now, and, and I think the FCC has pretty much decided that it's okay. It's um, Sprint, what's that? Uh, Sprint and um, T-Mobile Team, yeah, would, yeah. Like, would like yeah. to merge. Yep. Uh, that would make them, you know, uh, that would really reduce us in this country to really three cell phone carriers. We'd have the Sprint T-Mobile combination. We'd have AT&T. We'd have Verizon. There wouldn't be much else. Yeah. Um, that seems to most people to be somewhat anti-competitive um, and seems to be a little bit too much consolidation. However, the chairman of the FCC has said, well, we have to roll out 5G. We need to be leaders in this country of having a, that robust service. That service has to be available in all parts of the country. The only way to do it is to have large cell phone companies with the deep pockets to roll it out. Right. So he said, so therefore I'm approving the merger of Sprint and T-Mobile, even though it seems anti-competitive. So it's, it's, you know, it's almost like the old AT&T case, right? We want yeah. phone service in every home. How could we do it? We need to have a monopoly that has deep pockets, who can do that? The same arguments being used for the rollout of 5G service um, and allowing the cell phone companies to consolidate so they have the deep pockets to do it. There's certainly, it's not a, it's not uncontroversial mm-hmm. because I read today that the Department of Justice is now going to review that merger right. uh, and may, uh, may force uh, T-Mobile and Sprint to uh, spin off some of their services uh, before they can complete the merger. Whether they'll do it or not is another story. The DOJ hasn't brought a big antitrust suit since the 90s um, when it sued Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not convinced that this Department of Justice under this administration will really do much with this case, but they're threatening to do it. Yeah, and it's interesting. It kind of goes back to that whole argument of whether a company can effectively be and fairly be gatekeeper and also service provider at the same time, which obviously for a lot of reasons is complicated and there probably isn't a clean answer to it. That said, um, so when you sent me this story and and I started thinking about how a discussion would go, I, I, I immediately started thinking about, well, if you break up Facebook and you break up Google or you break up any company, aren't we just getting stuck again in this this 
process, which is kind of what you described with AT&T. It's this life cycle, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't address the, the cause. It doesn't address what, what's happening. It's just addressing the, the symptom, the symptom that people are seeing. Um, and that's when I start to scratch my head and say, is it really even worth, worth doing? And, and cause you're going to speak. So you, you crush down Facebook and Google and in another eight or 10 years, because technology is making innovation happen even faster, maybe it'll be two or three years, you're going to be back in the same situation again. Or perhaps maybe the best case scenario is that it takes 20 or 25 years. But at the end of the day, you're still getting back there. So is that the, is that the logical argument against it? Or is there a better argument against uh, forcing Facebook or Google to, to break down that you've heard um, to date. Well, I think these I think these kinds of situations go in 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 cycles, right? Because um, you know if we go back to when AT and T was broken up, um, you know what was the first effect? The first effect was that there not there were a multitude of uh, phone companies, a multitude of manufacturers, um, and they they innovated and they gave us. Uh, Cell service is one great example, right? Uh, smartphones is another great example. They, they, they innovated, they progressed, they brought down prices, they gave us a lot more choice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, over time, what's happened? Uh, they've consolidated again. And so now, you know, from, we went from something like, you know, s- several dozen phone companies to essentially three again. Um, so I think, things, I think these things go in cycles. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, social media, uh, search engines, um, online uh, shopping sites like Amazon, you know, we look at these kind of first players in the field like Facebook, Google, Amazon. Um, and, you know, how did they get so big? Well, they got so big doing two things, one or three things. One, they were there first. Right. Two, they innovated rapidly. Three, they bought out the competition. Okay. So now they've gotten too big. Um, and once that happens, and it's, 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 uh, it's an old story in industry, regardless of what the industry is, whether it's uh, John D. Rockefeller's uh, railroads and oil, or whether it's Mark Zuckerberg's uh, social media, Facebook, mm-hmm. um, once, the, once a company achieves this overwhelming dominant position in an industry, um, innovation tends to slow down, if not stop. Prices tend to rise. Yeah. And as in this country, that makes us very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because what we know, and we know it inherently, and we've been told it since the time of Thomas Jefferson, um, monopolies, will lead to, monopolies will lead to higher prices, lack of innovation, lack of competition, and it's in the public interest to break them up at some point. Mm-hmm. And so we see this go through in, in cycles over and over and over again. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So, I mean, here's the thing. Let's say we did break up Facebook, and that opened up that space for new players to come in, right? Maybe there's a better app out there. Right. Maybe there's a better way to communicate on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, shouldn't we be able to find it? Shouldn't someone be able to develop it? Um, and not be prevented from doing it because the one major player in there doesn't want competition. 
I mean, we go back to the, you know, we go back to AT and the phone, right? In 1984, AT&T told us that, you know, look, you can have a desk phone, you can have a wall phone, you can have a princess phone. These things are great. Don't, you know, and there's nothing else that's better than this. Okay? Well, we found out pretty quickly, there's a lot of better phones out there. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of better ways to use the phone. There's a lot of better ways to communicate. But AT&T wouldn't let anybody in that space. Mm-hmm. So there does seem to be you know, some societal benefit to at some point saying, all right, we see that this is a monopoly. We see that innovation has stopped. Um, we see that development has stopped. Um, we see that this company is, in fact, squelching development and squelching competition. Um, that's not good for us. Let's step in and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's the, philo- that's the philosophy behind it. So, so the last thing that I want to sort of touch on um, before we wrap up here, um, taking all the sort of going back to where we started, all the types of platforms that exist out there, radio, newspaper, digital, network TV, cable news, um, one by one, what is uh, the future of each? If, if you look forward five, ten years, what's the future of radio? What's the future of newspaper? What's digital, network TV, cable news? What do they look like after five or ten years pass? Well, which one do you want to start with? Start with radio. Okay, so uh, terrestrial radio, um, you know, becomes more and more limited to uh, cars uh, in terms of actually having a radio receiver, what we think of as traditional radio receiver, and more and more and more of it, more listening happens um, through streaming, uh, whether it's on your phone or some other type of device. And, you know, pretty much all radio stations, um, you know, are streaming their signal mm-hmm. and recognizing that, um, you know, they're getting more and more listenership that way. Um, I th- we, we saw a huge consolidation in that industry. That sort of stopped. We've gone back to more um, sort of regional ownership in radio. Uh, but it still seems to be a service people like, and it still seems to be a service advertisers in particular like. Um, advertisers can reach local audiences through radio because it tends to be a very local service, right? right? Um, and the ads can be changed very quickly because they're just audio. So there seems to be a place for terrestrial radio um, as long as they, the, the, the stations can keep up with the ways people listen. They're going to continue to face competition from services like Spotify and from satellite radio. Um, and so what I think we're going to see is probably more partnerships and consolidation between terrestrial radio, service streaming services, uh, and satellite services. Kind of like what we've seen with iHeartRadio yeah. as, as, an, as an easy example. Okay, so uh, newspapers, traditional newspapers. You know, that's, that's a good one. I think we're going to continue to see newspapers experiment with different ways of getting their product uh, to consumers. Uh, you know, we look at the uh, Post Standard, which if just a few years ago went from seven days of print every week to just three. Uh, and then the other four days, uh, if you want to get the paper, it's a facsimile. Um, on a tablet or on a phone. Um, I think the idea of the paywall in newspapers, uh, meaning that you know, unless you're paying the subscription fee, you can't get everything, I think we're going to see more and more of that because that audience tends to be very valuable to advertisers. <laughs> it's kind of a captive audience. 
I do think we'll see the number of, of print newspapers continue to decline and move more towards electronic services that are uh, subscription-based. You know, as long as the newspapers can continue to provide um, unique content, maintain the quality, maintain the quality yeah. that sort of that sort of well-researched uh, content. You know, that newspapers uh, and journalists uh, are known for. Um, and as long as they can maintain uh, some semblance of reliability to uh, people who s- consume that kind of news, um, you know, I think that's the trend. Now, the troubling trend with newspapers, though, is that um, their audience tends to be so much older. Right. Um, and, you know, if you're a millennial or if you're a Gen Zer, um, you know, you may have never seen any content from one of the from from your local paper, and you may not be interested in that content because you have so many other sources to get things. Right. Um, you know, does that change as people tend to settle down and you know uh, become permanent residents of an area and become more interested in local in local news and in local issues? Um, if if it does, uh, you know, then I think newspapers can survive, maybe not as fully print sources, but as sources of, um, you know, localized news. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, local network television. Yeah, local network television. Um, you know, it in they those stations seem to be doing uh, well, uh, and they seem to do well. Um, with news programming and local programming. I think the question for local stations is the sort of trend of the networks that they're affiliated with to provide programming through other platforms. So, for instance, if you're Channel 5 in Syracuse, which is a CBS affiliate, you know, you made some money by carrying CBS's, the network shows during prime time and other times, and that was the only place, you know, viewers could see them. So you were sort of a go-to source for, you know, these kind of high-quality primetime dramas, comedies, those kinds of things. But, you know, now CBS, you know, is they have CBS All Access. Right. You know, there are other ways to get those shows. Um, does that, you know, mean a decline uh, for local stations? Mm-hmm. Probably. I think... Uh, I read a prediction the other day that said, you know, that 20 years from now, local stations will be news 24 hours a day. They won't even bother running network programs because people will get them through streaming services. And the mainstay of local stations will be their local news. And, of course, we have seen in the last 10 years this huge expansion of yeah. local news. I mean, they're on, you know, we mentioned, I mentioned this before, you know, they're on from, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning until 9 and then they're on again from noon to one, and then they're on again from five to six thirty. Then they're on again from eleven to eleven thirty. That's a big expansion of, 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 of from what they were just ten years ago, and um, you know that may be how they survive by continuing to provide that local programming that people in a in a region can't get anyplace else. Cable news. Yeah, cable news. Um, again, I think cable news survives because of the twenty four hour nature of the news cycle. And it's the one source for uh, 24-hour-a-day news. Um, we may, I, I, you know, and as lo- again, as long as cable news can adapt to the different platforms consumers use to view, 
and can effectively do that. Um, you know, they've got fairly deep pockets. Uh, there's good advertising revenue coming in. If they can adapt to the variety of platforms people use, um, I think cable news will stay because people, you know, all of us, uh, we, we want what we want when we want it. So if it's 3 o'clock in the morning and I, wanna, I want some news, right, I want to know what's going on, um, well, cable news is providing a feed 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, I can check CNN on my phone. I can flip on my TV and see CNN. Uh, I can turn on my iPad and see CNN. And not only can I, you know, I can, and I can either look at, you know, a sort of web page that they'll put out there, or, um, you know, I can look at the stream of their broadcast. Digital. Digital what? Digital. So, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 I would say we'll just call it the, the digital, the Huffington Post, the, the Politicos, the digital, all digital platforms. Okay. What's the future for those look like in the next five to ten years? Uh, I, you know, I, I think we'll see digital sources come and go. Uh, you know, I think the, the future of those kinds of digital sources uh, really depends on their ability to attract advertising revenue. I mean, that's really what it's all about. Um, consumers generally don't like to subscribe to those kinds of services or pay for those kinds of services. Uh, the way they'll pay for uh, Netflix or Hulu or uh, Amazon, um, and mainly because the use of them is, is somewhat is somewhat sporadic. So those the if the future of a source like the Huffington Post really depends on how many I'll call them loosely readers they're able to attract, and are they able to sell that audience to advertisers? So if one can, it'll you'll stay. If not. Um, you know, it'll fade away. And we've seen many, many, many sites like that fade away because, you know, it's a crowded field and it's hard to stand out. Yeah. Well, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for coming down and uh, really interesting conversation. It didn't disappoint. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. This is a great show. Appreciate it. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your week. If you enjoy it, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Membership begins at $5 per month and ensures that local journalism can grow. Don't worry, you'll never see a paywall on FingerLakesOne.com. There won't be any of those intrusive pop-up ads either. Just news, sports, and weather delivered 24-7 to your smartphone, tablet, and desktop computer. Learn more by visiting Patreon.com.